Thank you so much. Good morning. Wonderful morning to be able to gather together like this. So many different opportunities to be able to not only express our praise and glory, thankfulness to God, but also to hear of the great things that God is doing. We want to continue now in that vein by taking our Bibles and turning together to the 18th chapter of the Physician Luke's book, where you and I are introduced to another of the critical questions that we are examining very carefully over the course of these summer Sundays. And in this 18th chapter, you and I have the opportunity to look carefully at a parable that Jesus Christ tells. A parable is from a Greek word, parabole, which carries with it the idea to lay something alongside another. In this case, to lay a story alongside a singular truth. And the truth that will be communicated is the truth of justice. The story that will be communicated is the story of this persistent widow who appeals to an unrighteous judge asking for his intervention. And we're going to ask how this relates to 2014 living. To do that, let's read and then we'll look to our Lord in prayer. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so in the context of this remarkable story on the persistence of prayer, is the bigger picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and how the second coming of Jesus Christ has direct bearing upon how to address the injustices of this world, and how the second coming of Jesus Christ inspires you and inspires me to pray even more persistently for God to intervene. So it's a remarkable, remarkable story we're looking at, and we want to look to our Lord first in prayer. Thank you for Selenga, his colleague. And we're praying that in the midst of all that's happening in this building, in the multiple services, and the range of people, that you're being honored and glorified by our hearts and our desire to keep you first. We're looking to your word as we look for your son, Jesus Christ. So in light of all that we've expressed thus far in our worship, we continue now in that same vein as we worship you through the application of your truth to our lives. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. 
Him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a story that Dr. Billy Graham has shared off and on through the course of the years that God's given him to minister. It's a story of an inscription in the dome of our capital in Washington that few people even know of. It's an inscription that says, One far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. Dr. Graham says that a visitor saw this inscription and asked the guide what it meant. And he immediately responded that it refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that the dome of our capital was erected, some believers, believing officials, ordered that this inscription be etched in the dome of our seat of government believing that its truth was vital to the concern of our nation. It's that second coming of Jesus Christ that Jesus has been speaking of in these verses that is going to launch him into this very unique parable that needs to be unpacked, and then a dramatic, critical question that will be posed forcing you and forcing me to grapple with the big issues of life. There are three significant values that I find in these verses that pertain to the second coming of Jesus Christ that I want to be able to draw out for us together. Let's check them out together. The first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 5. That in light of Christ's return, first of all, I want you to value with me the persistence, the persistence of prayer. And he told them, speaking of his disciples now, a parable. Again, a parable is that which is laid alongside something else, as you see in your, in your handouts. And so now he's about to lay a story alongside of the teachings that he has provided thus far on his second coming. And as he tells them this parable, the physician Luke informs us that the purpose, the effect, was that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now I want you to underline that word ought. It carries with the idea of a necessity. We are being told, then, that this is not an option, an elective in the curriculum of Christian experience. But rather, this is a mandatory course we're required to enter into. They ought, and notice furthermore, they ought always. Which bears with it, then, the idea of the persistence the persistence of prayer that Jesus Christ now is endorsing for you and for me to make part of in our own everyday relationship to him. So then he told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and furthermore, not to lose heart. Not to lose heart when you're facing delays to answered prayer 
Not to lose heart when the initial reaction from God the Father is different than what you had hoped for or expected of. But you persistently continue on because you know that he is the sovereign one who intervenes. Now, what's fascinating to me is that in the past months I've had various people talk about the whole matter of something that's been brought to them in various conversations throughout this region. And it goes something like this. Since God is sovereign, what's the purpose of praying? If God is in complete control and it's his will that is done, then why pray, let alone persist in prayer? Now, this is a fascinating question. Because, yes, God is sovereign. At the same time, yes, God has also required prayer. How does Jesus go about addressing that issue? Jesus, second member of the Trinity, transports you, transports me, back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in that garden where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit covenantally have set in motion events that will lead unmistakably to the cross of Jesus Christ and three days later his resurrection, Jesus transports us to that scene where, as Matthew would put it in his 26th chapter, Jesus would say to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to what? Pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the very same three that he had taken on that Mount of Transfiguration. But God the Father had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now the question is, now will they listen to him with regard to the matter of prayer? He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now you're getting to the very core of God's sovereignty, the will of God. Yet within the whole parameters of the will of God, where he sovereignly works, God has sovereignly ordained that we pray to him persistently because it is part of the, of the overarching strategy that God utilizes to sovereignly work out his purposes, his course of action for his glory and for our good. And even the second member of the Trinity, you and I find, persists persists even in the face of injustice in prayer. So now, if you are facing a delay, if you're facing an incredible obstacle, if you're facing an overwhelming challenge in your own experience to get, 
Yet you have come to this biblical conviction that God is sovereign. Bear in mind, then, that God is sovereignly righteous, God is sovereignly true, God is sovereignly powerful, and so on. But God will not, as the sovereign one, pit his nature against his word. He will not pit his sovereignty against his teachings. They are in not conflict with one another. They are in correspondence with one another. And so now there is, in the short run of things, a biblical example to answer the question that's posed. And so now you and I begin to wrestle in our inner hearts. Am I willing to do what Jesus Christ, in fact, had done in the face of movements towards injustice of this world? And pray, and pray persistently, even when others were sleeping on the job. He launches now into a parable. And in this parable, what I want you to be able to do is to understand, to develop, to lay out the contrasts. The contrasts between this widow and the judge, but even more so the contrast between God and this judge. Let's start with the widow and this judge. He said in verse 2 that a certain, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. Clearly, an unbeliever. He has had authority delegated to him by the sovereign God, but he views himself as independent from God, and in his introspective moments, he even says as much as you and I read here, that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's his descriptive. Flip side, there's a widow in that city. But mark the phrasing. Who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now connect the dots and take that phrase, who kept coming to him, back to verse 1, where the purpose of all this was that Jesus' disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, keep marching forward. In verse 4, you and I are then told that for a while he refused, speaking of this judge. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, it's reemphasized, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, he sees her coming again and again and again into his court, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. In the Greek, it carries out the idea of to blacken the eye by her continual coming. Did you see that continual coming thing? Back again to what Jesus had said in verse 1. That you and I ought always to pray and not lose heart. This woman will not, chooses not to lose heart. She persists, even with an unrighteous judge 
before her. Now, the contrast between the widow and the judge. He, she is powerless before her adversary. He is powerful pertaining to that adversary. She is helpless. He has the capacity to be helpful. She is persistent. He's wearied. She needs justice. He has the authority to administer justice. She has to wait. He chooses to delay. She's overwhelmed by her inability to deal with her adversary. He has the capacity and the authority to rule against that adversary, but lacks compassion in this story. What do you make of this? What do you make of this? It's interesting that Luke the physician, in chapter 11, had recorded Jesus as having said, And I tell you, in verse 9, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Literally, it would read, and I tell you, ask and keep asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking and you will find. Knock and keep knocking and it will be opened to you. My mind went back to the biography of George Miller. In 1844, there were five people that were laid on his heart who didn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he began to pray for them. Eighteen months passed before one of them came to know Jesus. He prayed for another five years, another came to know him. At the end of twelve and a half years, a third was born again. After 40 years, he was still praying for the other two without missing the biographer informs us of a single day on any account, whatever. They still had not come to know the Lord. But he felt encouraged, however, because of this parable, to continue to pray, believing that God was going to respond to his, to his intercessory prayer. And before he passed away, all five had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Persistence has a way of purifying the soul. It purifies the petition and the petitioner. If Jesus, if the sovereign God responds each time immediately, we would reduce prayer then to some technique to get quick responses in this highly impulsive age and fail then over the long term to be able to distinguish between a personal whim and a true need. And what persistence in prayer does 
is that it enlarges our souls to recognize the sovereignty of God and our dependency upon God. And without persistence, our souls are not elastic. And they can shrink. And we fail to recognize the difference between the immediate wishes and the ultimate issues that we have to address and confront within our own personal lives. Persistence has a way of clarifying for us what's really needed here, what's really important here, what's truly critical here. Now, is God clarifying things, what's primary and what's secondary in your own own life? Or do we simply have a wish list in which everything is treated with equivalence? Persistence in the midst of delay has a way of forcing us to prioritize, doesn't it? And testing us as to how significant this issue truly is. In light of Christ's return, number one, value the persistence of prayer. Now, in verse 6, down through the first part of verse 8, is a second value. That secondly, in light of Christ's return, value the promise of justice. Not only the persistence of prayer, but the value now of justice. Jesus now is going to provide perspective on this parable. And so in verse 6, he says to you, and he says to me, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now, in philosophy, and in particular in logic, this is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the unrighteous judge was willing to do this, how much more so will the righteous one do this? So now he's creating a real contrast, not merely between the widow and the unrighteous judge, But the righteous judge, God, and the unrighteous judge of this parable, and now he poses the critical question that you and I have to grapple with. And will not God give justice to his elect? There's the sovereignty issue on one hand in response to that person's question. But notice the value of the persistence of prayer coupled with it, who cry to him day and night. So now you agonize over the injustices that you might have faced, the injustice that right now it appears that you are facing, and the question can quickly be, why? Do you pray for the media? When God does something special in the heart of someone who opens that heart to the Lord 
it can have a dramatic effect. Kirsten Powers, whose political views are not in sync with mine in most areas, though I've seen a movement of hers in the direction of the positions I hold, recently has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. She's a regular on shows like Hannity or The O'Reilly Factor and so on. And God dramatically broke into her heart. She attends Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And has now quite an audience with those that at one time thought that she was utterly opposed to things of Christianity, and now she is forcing her her camp to rethink. And in a, a recent article in USA Today, she asks, Iraq's Christians are begging the world for help. Is anybody listening? Since capturing the country's second largest city of Mosul in early June, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria has ordered Christians to convert to Islam, pay taxes levied on non-Muslims, or die. The extremist Sunni group is also persecuting and murdering Turkmen and Shabaks, both Muslim religious minorities. Human rights lawyer... Nina Shea described the horror in Mozo to me. ISIS took the Christians' houses, took the cars they were driving to leave, took all their money. One elderly woman had her life savings of $40,000 taken from her, and she said, can I please have $100? And they said, no. They took wedding rings off fingers, chopping off fingers if they could not get the rings off. We now have 5,000 destitute homeless people in that city. No future. It's a crime against humanity. And Ms. Powers goes on to say that for the first time in 2,000 years, Mozo is reaching a point of being devoid of Christians. It's the ancient city of Nineveh. Isis is taking the houses and the businesses, and there's nothing left. You want to track in the House of Representatives the movements, the works of Frank Wolf. He has been outstanding in this area of global injustice, particularly as it relates to the experiences of Christians throughout the world, who three times in the past days has stood up in the House of Representatives and argued regarding the plight of the Christians in that region of the world. Wolf said the Kurds have done a good job, but they are bearing the burden, and we need to step forward and provide basics such as food and water. Now the people could rightly be crying out, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? What do you do when you are persistent in prayer 
and you embrace the promise of justice. Do what the early church did in the book of Acts. In Acts 12, Herod the king, we are told, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. One of the three that had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the three that had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. The three now are are, are feeling the pressure. Peter was kept in prison, but listen now. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They embraced the parable principle. Do you? God intervened, even though it seemed delayed, and they may be grappling with, and why did that happen to James? But they are praying, and all of a sudden, Rhoda. Rhoda comes to the door of the prayer gathering, and she hears and she recognizes Peter's voice. God has intervened. God has simply Got him out of jail free. But she doesn't even open the door. She runs in and reports to the people in the prayer gathering. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. As he continues to knock at the door. I mean, they're earnestly praying for him to get out of the prison setting. And he's earnestly knocking to get into the prayer meeting. Do you recognize the value of how persistent prayer links to the sovereign workings of God? And how this can have bearing upon your life as well when you're confronted with the injustices of this world. All that that judge is, God is not. All that God is, that judge is not. And so in verse 8, Jesus delivers the goods and says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That when God breaks in, it will be happening in such rapid-fire movement, succession, you could barely bat an eye. That's the idea here. And he's talking now about the second coming of Christ and how that drives persistence in prayer with the promise of justice. And why Martin Luther said he had only two days on his calendar, today and that day, you see. Now it's that day, the second coming, that leads us to this third value that's found now in the second half of verse 8. That thirdly, in light of Christ's return, value with me the perseverance of faith. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, underline that title, the Son of Man. I want your eyes to scan 
the second half of chapter 17. And look for that title and how it relates to the second coming of Christ and how it drives this trio of persistence of prayer, number one, promise of justice, number two, and perseverance of faith, number three. In verse 22 of the 17th chapter, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Isn't that the descriptor that was used in verse 8? You'll not see it. And they'll say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's the picture behind the phrase, he will give justice to them speedily. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected in his generation. And just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Flip down to 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, burying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, all of that is meant to be linked. Four times Son of Man is used in that teaching. It links, it connects the dots for you. Now, in this 18th chapter, where Jesus Christ says in verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, speaking of that day. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man, which was used four times in that prior teaching, comes, will he find faith on earth? Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in God's promised one. But you remember that story of Lot that Jesus has just referenced with regard to his second coming, just as in the days of Lot? When God promised Abraham that he was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleaded with God and interceded for those people there. He was persistent in his prayer with God to the point where he shouted out and cried it out in Genesis 18, verse 25. Listen. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. That's the idea there. When it happens, it'll happen quicker than the beat of the eye. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes four times in chapter 17, that phrase was used. Question, will he find faith you see on earth? And does he find faith in your heart when you face injustice? John Hus, the courageous pastor of Prague, 
arrested, condemned, sentenced to be burned at a church council in 1415 for arguing for justification by faith alone. When Hus heard his sentence pronounced, fell to his knees and prayed, Lord Jesus, forgive my enemies. And then when he was chained to the stake, he prayed, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. And then the flame snuffed out the one who has been known as the morning star of the Reformation, which inspired a Martin Luther to say that he had only two days on his calendar, today and that day, which drives us then into a passage that links the persistence of prayer with the promise of justice to the perseverance of faith. And if a horse could maintain that degree of persistent prayer, the promise of justice, and the perseverance of faith in the midst of that injustice, then he connects the dot that he's experiencing to that which Jesus Christ as well had faced. Whereas Peter himself, who would be released from prison, put it, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, what? Judges justly. First Peter chapter 2 verses 22 and 23, and now you have made major connections in your dots. And you can see how perseverance in prayer, persistence in prayer, it clarifies what's a deep-seated desire from simply a, a fleeting whim. Purifies, forces us to prioritize keeps us from becoming complacent and giving up. And like that long-distance runner who is wearing as he approaches the finish line, somehow, someway, he finds an extra kick and drives himself forward and thrusts himself, in this case, into the arms of God. One far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves question is, likewise for you and for me, are you moving in that direction with your own personal life before God? Let's stand together. And Father, we see global matters and we see personal matters. We see how the stories of Noah and Lot, the past, allow for the past, repairs for the future. And we see how a simple story can have such profound impact upon those of us here that may be losing heart. And if we're being real honest, they're saying, I'm not persistent. I'm sporadic at best. And then I wonder, where are you? when the real question is you asking of that person, where are you? 
you're not as close today as you once were. I want you to persist. Come dear to me. So Father, if this mocks anybody in these services this morning, anyone here in particular, stir that heart now and let them embrace these tri- this trio of thoughts, these values, and make it part of their lives. And for this we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.